it's going. Okay, I want to welcome everybody. I want to welcome you to the Choy Needle Show. Yay. Okay, so as most of you know, this is the last of the Choya Needles readings for uh, the Big Read. And uh, so far, five readings. This is the sixth reading. Uh, each one of them has been different. Each one's been in a, in a different location, and a lot of you have been to some of them. Uh, I think. Well, I wanted to start off by thanking the, the staff at the Palms for letting us use the, uh, use the, use the facility here. I want to thank Gray, who's operating the soundboard back there. Kevin Bone, the bartender. Uh, and speak, speaking of that, if you want to order something to drink or food, because they are still serving food, please go up to the bar and, and, and put your order there. They'll, they'll, you know, if you make a food order, they'll bring their order out for you. But rather than try to do table service, which could be a little disruptive, we're just gonna ask everybody to, to go up to the bar. Uh, let's see, among other people we wanna thank, we wanna thank Marie Bobbin for helping, to, for organizing the Big Read, which has been just great. And we had, we had two events in Wonder Valley. Uh, yesterday I went over to the Wonder Valley Community Center to watch uh, the Traveling Symphony, Mary Hunter's adaptation of parts of, of uh, Station Eleven. And uh, it was great. It was really, really great. The, uh, the Big Read has given a lot of the creative community here an opportunity to respond creatively to the issue of survival which is the theme of this last issue of the Cho of Choya Needles. And I was one of the people who, who participated. Uh, many of you know me, but my name is George Howell. And I'm going to read a couple of things. Uh, actually, one thing that didn't make it into the issue, but it's a survival poem. And uh, this one is called Peanut Butter and Gravel. The pack rat has such sweet, innocent eyes. What am I going to do with her? She licks peanut butter off her paws, ignoring me. A glob of the gooey stuff mixes with the gravel underneath the car, where I caught her last night. Now she paces inside a humane trap on top of the oil reservoir, where I found her nest, a pile of yellow insulation she stripped from the engine cabin. The pack rat is the original assemblage artist, one of them built a labyrinth of colored papers, plastic bags, weeds, and wires inside an old bathtub cast away in our backyard. They have a yen for the car's wiring and peanut butter. I admit it, when I found the nest, I was angry. How can I survive in the desert without my car? I thought about tossing the trap into a bucket of water and drowning her. But I didn't. I drove over to an abandoned shack and dropped her off on the sofa with stuffing bursting out of the springs. The yard was littered with sparkling shards of glass, decaying shirts and tires, a ripe playground for a sower of chaos. Is the pack rat one of a million species destined for the sixth great extinction? As long as people have a taste for consumerism and the trash that packages it, 
I don't think so. And it's not really a question of a pack rat survival, is it? So I've got, uh, I've got one other one I'm, I'm, I'm going to read that was in an earlier issue of Choya Needles. Uh, not, you know, I, I didn't submit it for the survival issue, but it's a kind of survival poem. Uh, and this is called Painted Ladies. The dead butterfly I found nestled in the gravel near the mailbox followed me on my, 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 <laughs> on my migration to the laundromat. A humble painted lady, not the sexy vanishing monarch, its four telltale eye spots pressed against the pennies and scraps of paper in my car's cup holder. Thirty years ago, we drove through a fog of monarchs, yellow and green splatters on the windshield, and in the cabin, caterpillars suspended like acrobats on the doors and walls, caught in the gymnastics of dying, half-formed butterflies trapped in the cracked open bodies, their transition incomplete. The dark cloud of wings returning from Mexico. When do the painted ladies travel north? Two of them last week fluttered in arabesques of attraction and avoidance, grappling at the base of the dandelions and the white desert chicory. Orange and yellow, male and female, Animated specks inscribing themselves across the snowy canvas of San Gorgonio in the distance. There is a deep loneliness in the gap between two mating butterflies and the white emptiness of San Gorgonio, remote as the Arctic Circle, the destination of a journey they will never reach. Okay, thank you. Okay, so the next reader is Mike. Eyes glazed green with sin, track the first called players. Metaphorical glass between those desired spaces and benched reality is smudged with grubby fingerprints. Hot, jealous breath steams off those bold white numbers running away from them. So many hexes for injuries, just disastrous enough, are cast after them one by one. And then one more, um, this one. I've been trying to play around with different forms in this collection too. So this is a, um, it's a Rondo. These are all spanking pigs that they've written a Rondo before, so it might not be very good. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> there was nothing before the sport. The after, joy of a new sort, a wondrous sense of newfound release. No gentility to appease. She'd arrived in a new port. Here, animal and man cavort. Restraint is met with a retort. Freed aggression cultivates peace. She found herself, you see. Wisdom, friendship she would import into her soul and would not thwart the lesson she learned piece by piece. Never let love for home decrease. Never let your team's pride fall short. She found herself, you see. Thank you. The goldfish problem, or how we became gargantuan. Shards of gold jump as a pair, then kiss, smack, smack. How sweet, we think, 
but they truly gasp for air. And we care, we buy a pump, 99 times more than the two one-buck fish squished in their brandy glass that perks, gurgles, and blends with day noise like a cute, mellow mini-fountain, mini but now attacks us with the salty din of factory apparatus and a warehouse full of faulty washing machines. We can't hear ourselves or even Seinfeld. Bubbly broth sounds great on appetites. We snack a lot on tons of nuts, tiramisu, and chocolate. We are cranky, twitchy. The glitzy pear soon balloon into floating green, pink grapefruit. We try to calm them by drawn curtains, place them near a swamp cooler with a perfect pond atmosphere. Our doorbell flips off visitors, reserved trips are canceled, and no seafood of any kind is ever served. Death gulp rattles are finally sung, curtains are flung open with blissful relief, and we stare at our huge surplus bodies. called pathological. The first pill was my last. My young son and I were far from home visiting someone gravely ill, someone we loved, my father. I didn't feel well. My throat was stuffed with knives, my head hot cement. I do tend to overstate. I was impatient for health. The urgent care doctor guessed sinusitis and prescribed a quick fix pressed a sample into my palm, free. I tossed back the first pill before dinner. Immediately, an itch in my ears, in my throat, can't breathe. In the bathroom mirror, I fell into black, blown-wide pupils. My son was scared, my dad confused. Wasn't he the sick one? At the emergency room, my knees went hollow. Fluorescence became stars. A red cart was wheeled in, and I read its label. Anaphylaxis is a beautiful word I wanted to say, but could not. I had no air, no words. Epinephrine brought me back. I felt high, speedy, ready to go, but they made me lie still. A nurse swung back the curtain to change my IV bag. She made conversation. Allergies are irrational. The body's overreaction to something that's not really a threat. I do tend to overreact. It probably wasn't even sinusitis, said the doctor who signed my discharge papers. Just a head cold. Drink fluids. Rest. Think good thoughts, he said. My father thought good thoughts, but he did not recover. In the end, none of us do. I believe death pulled him under gently, tugged him like a seashell from the beach. I felt that tug before the epinephrine yanked me back. Nothing to fear, nothing to fix, how it will be again one day. Until then, I try not to overreact. I suffer the small sicknesses, stay grateful for luck, grateful for deep breaths, never again a thoughtless swallow.
I'll read a couple poems from Root. And um, I don't know, it seems like I'm always writing about survival here in the desert. It's like death is staring you in the face every time you wake up in the morning. So um, I'll read a couple of fairly short ones. This is called The End of Things. Try as I might, I can't imagine not being here in this body, in this life. I know that the two baby doves with their eyes pecked out, died for a reason. If nothing else, to feed the ants who swarm to take back the bodies. Try as I might, I can't imagine suffering the same or suffocating in an airless box. So I'll cast my lot with fire. When my bones drift like feathers in the wind and rest on sand and rock, then the ants can have me. So, and, and this is a coyote poem. Sounding. Coyote mounts the highest rock, nose lifted, sharp yips. She and the sky have an understanding. It's a mystery when the blue will fall. So she takes her intention with her, bounding downwards. Someone will die, and you'll be left to tell what they did for you and to you. Even if you're not sure how to say one true thing, how to get past a stab, a curse, a dare. Coyote stares you down. You may be wrong. You'll always be wrong. It's your word against theirs. But your word is your vow between you and the sky and the blood pounding in your throat as you let loose the cry that will save you. There is nothing else left for you to do. The tide will turn. This is wisdom making, drawing a line in the sand to then see how quickly it doesn't matter. Identify your worst fears to then have them arrived unannounced in full flurry and fighting yourself on the other side, still breathing, still standing, still longing, still knowing the next step is waiting. Turn, return to that closet full of those, quote, I will not, I will never, I can't go there, I will never be, and let them fly free forever. Release the don'ts and won'ts and wants. Start from right now with one atom. See where she wants to flow. Follow. Sew them together after they bury you with unexpected love. The worst may yet be waiting. Tell your gut to expect a miracle. You may be surprised when they stand up and applaud your foresight, your preparation, you once called despair and anxiety, but is now authentically turned into knowledge. Let go of holding the darkness back. Swim breaststrokes 
into the night sea. Stay longer than expected in those grottos forbidden to explore. Talk to those pernicious friends of anxiety and doubt, flying frayed ends of whips and flagellation. Listen to their grunts, to their climaxes. Let them guide you wide. Ride these ancient waves as they roar you into liminal edges of unformed, wet, yeasty new self. It is time to live your own life because there is nothing else left for you to do. Thank you. Go, I think. It's called Needing Air. Somehow this seems to go along with what Brenda was talking about. In my lungs, it felt like I wasn't getting enough oxygen. I became acutely aware of a breathlessness I need to gasp in some cold, fresh air. I rolled the car window down and let the wind wash over me. Relax, I told myself. Breathe in, breathe out. I followed my therapist's directions. How could it be so easy, I wondered. Just breathing. I imagined being in a womb, lungs filled with fluid, yet all my oxygen needs being met through the umbilical cord and placenta. The oxygen I needed being supplied as my mother breathed in, breathed out. Then the laborious expulsion out into an oxygen-filled atmosphere, something sucking the fluid out of my lungs, opening up and filling with air. I shrieked in surprise. The sensation was cold, dry, unsupported, alone. My mother took me in her arms and held me tightly, rocked me gently and all was well. Breathe in, breathe out. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Hi, I'm Randy Smith. Uh, I'm building a home in Wonder Valley. been out here about two years, and this is my first time uh, to enjoy a meaningless function. Uh, I'm not familiar with, you know, you're, you're a station and I've been doing a survival series, so I'm just going to talk about myself. Um, I'd like to preface it all uh, by saying I'm a 15-year uh, stage 4 uh, oral cancer survivor. So, uh, I, I feel pretty close to that subject myself. And I would have to say, uh, part of what really got me through it mentally uh, was a, an essay that my mom <coughs> printed up, had on the inside of the kitchen cover. When we did dishes, we didn't have dishwasher back then. Mom would wash, and I would dry. Oh, that's the other pieces. Uh, essay by Calvin Coolidge, and it's called uh, Perseverance. Nothing in the world and take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Uh, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men or women with 
talent. Genius will not. Uh, un unrewarded genius is almost uh, improper. Entertainment will not. The world is full of entertaining talents. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. I also wanted to just sort of minute talk about myself and what I'm experiencing. I got throat head through when I was in my late 40s. Uh, I was uh, working a successful job uh, in Culver City, uh, near Los Angeles, uh, making all kind of money. I, I thought I was doing pretty well, married, uh, no children. And um, I got throat pains. One day I was like, I was having trouble swallowing, felt like I'd been lumping my throat. Uh, I went and had a diagnosis, uh, long story short, uh, I had squamous cell carcinoma in my right soft palate and my tonsil, and after they got some cat scans, it was in my, my lip nodes too, uh, in my right shoulder. So uh, in 2003, December, uh, they did a 12-hour procedure called a radical neck dissection. And it's about as serious uh, an operation that you can undergo. It was under for about 12 hours. Um, they basically took my jaw apart and had to get to the tumor. Long, long story short, in the hospital 15 days, uh, went home. About eight weeks later, I had radiation treatments because it had gotten in my lymph nodes and wanted to make sure it didn't metastasize anywhere else. So I had six weeks of radiation. Well, the radiation actually had more long-term problems with me as far as survival and dealing with it uh, than the surgery itself. I healed up pretty quickly from the surgery. And for several years after the surgery, I could eat, you know, no problem. You know, I had a little trouble with hot foods. My, my taste buds were Largely affected, I, I have a constant dry mouth, but I just, I deal with it. So, about 10 years ago, it got to the point where I couldn't swallow anymore. So they had to put in a feeding tube, right? And they told me, all right, you're gonna, you're gonna be on booster and sure for the rest of your life. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I've always been that way, you know. I, I don't just blindly follow what the doctors tell me to do. I do my due diligence. I go on the internet. I, I read uh, and I learn. So what I ended up doing, I was going on the blending diet. I have a vitamin blender that I use every day. Uh, I just throw fruits, vegetables, protein, all my food in there. Shoot it into my stomach with a syringe, and that's how I eat. And uh, people wouldn't know it to look at me. I mean, it's sort of a, an invisible disability, but uh, even when I, I get dry mouth enough, it's hard to talk. So, before all that, 
I was on kind of a treadmill, you know. But after surviving the cancer, um, it changed my whole outlook on life. I mean, in some ways it was the best thing that happened to me. Because really we're all surviving. I mean, from the day we're born. If, if you're not dead, you're surviving. Some just have uh, <coughs> greater challenges than others. But I, most of all, the most important thing to survival is being grateful. You know, it makes the best in your situation. You're grateful for the, the beautiful sunsets and the clouds and, and your friends and, and your family. That's, that's what survival is. Marina's pedestrian entrance was on the far side. He had used it several times before. A handful of boat owners stood near the harbor master's office. They ignored him as the teenager walked past and entered the maze of docks where the various watercraft were tied up. He picked one dock and began walking slowly on its timbered surface. After several minutes, he stopped. Ahead was a Mastercraft Pro Star 190. The 20-foot-long ski boat had an open cockpit and only one seat in front of the steering wheel. Alerts had been posted on the bulletin boards of the marinas along the river, detailing the rash of boat thefts Benjamin was responsible for committing. They warned owners to keep their ignition keys with them, but old habits die hard. As Benjamin stood next to the Pro Star and looked down at the instrument panel, he saw that the key was in the ignition. He stepped into the craft. Months before, during the midnight burglary of Hamilton's only hardware store, he took a copy of a thick book called Chapman Piloting and Seamanship. Known as the Bible of Boating, it has been the leading reference work for boaters for almost 100 years. Studying the book provided him with the basics of operating a watercraft and enough information to begin his wave of boat thefts. Benjamin picked up an orange life raft, life jacket, sorry, laying at his feet, slipped it under his shoulders and tightened its straps. He turned the blower on to vent the engine box behind him of any combustible fumes. Then he primed the cold engine and tried to start it. On the first attempt, it stuttered and stalled. After he primed it again and engaged the starter, the engine burbled to life. The, the teenager hopped out of the boat, untied the bow and stern lines, and got back behind the wheel. He pushed the throttle knob, and the Pro Star began to move forward. Several of those who sat in folding chairs on the decks of their boats waved to him while Benjamin slowly navigated past and towards the open river. To his right loomed the bridge, reflecting the light of the sinking sun as he exited the marina. He planned to follow the Oregon coastline as it slanted northwest from Astoria and then cross the Columbia River at its narrowest point. This section of the river was known to be dangerous and unpredictable, part of the infamous Columbia Bar but the notorious reputation 
made it unlikely any law enforcement vessels would attempt to pursue him. For now, the river was calm. In the distance, Benjamin could see a line of container ships, freighters and tankers, moving upstream. The river's presence allowed Portland, which was 70 miles from the Pacific, to serve as an ocean port. Following the shoreline, the ski boat drew closer to the river's mouth. The Columbia's flow began to clash with the incoming ocean current as both tried to get over the shallow bar at the same time. The, the teenager could feel a wind coming up from the west. It blew harder and the serenity of the river rapidly disappeared. Replaced within a few minutes by a series of breakers that increased in violence and size before Benjamin's eyes. He steered the boat so it would strike the waves at a 45 degree angle. According to Chapman, this course might prevent the craft from capsizing. The sun disappeared beneath the ocean while the pro star passed between two red buoys and out into the channel. Now the breakers grew even larger and more treacherous, swirling unpredictably and forming whirlpools. These were the worst conditions Benjamin had ever experienced. He pushed the throttle knob, increasing the craft's speed. It climbed a breaker and sailed through the air before crashing into another wave. He could barely control the boat, but the teenager maintained its rapid speed. He was terrified and desperate to reach the Washington side of the Columbia as soon as possible. Up ahead, the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse's powerful beam sliced through the night while, along the shore, stationary green and red directional light lights blinked methodically. Early in the century, a long wooden jetty had been constructed that protruded like a giant cactus spine into the river. The green light stood at the jetty's point, next to the mouth of a channel. Even though the bar's violent waters continued to pound the Pro Star, Benjamin slowed the boat's speed. He had to be certain not to miss the channel. Otherwise, the wild river would send the small craft crashing into the rocky shore. Seconds after he passed the light, a massive breaker abruptly slammed into the side of the boat, throwing it out of the shallow water, waterway and onto a pocket beach. Benjamin shut off the engine. The wind howled uncontrollably, raising a sound like that of a thousand coyotes stalking him in the darkness. But he was finally out of the Columbia's grasp. After climbing unsteadily from the grounded craft, he stumbled for several steps before slumping onto the sand. His body trembled from the trauma of the crossing. As he huddled on the beach, Benjamin grasped a medal that hung by a thin chain from his neck. He pressed it against his chest. When are you coming, he shouted breathlessly into the gale. God damn it, when are you coming? By the end of year 15, there were 300 people in the airport and the Museum of Civilization filled the Skyline's lounge. In former times, when the airport had had fewer people, Clark had worked all day at the details of survival, gathering firewood, 
hauling water to the restrooms to keep the toilets operational, participating in salvage operations in the abandoned town of Severn City, planting crops in the narrow fields along the runways, skinning deer. But there were many more people now, and Clark was older, and no one seemed to mind if he cared for the museum all day. There seemed to be a limitless number of objects in the world that had no practical use, but that people wanted to preserve. Cell phones with their delicate buttons, iPads, Tyler's Nintendo console, a selection of laptops. There were a number of impractical shoes, stilettos mostly, beautiful and strange. There were three car engines in a row, cleaned and polished, a motorcycle composed mostly of gleaming chrome, Traders brought things for Clark sometimes, objects of no real value that they knew he would like, magazines and newspapers, a stamp collection, coins. There were the passports or the driver's licenses or sometimes the credit cards of people who had lived at the airport and then died. Clark kept impeccable records. He kept Elizabeth and Tyler's passports open to the picture pages. Elizabeth had given them to him the night before they'd left in the summer of year two. He was still unsettled by the passports after all these years. They were unsettling people. We've got plenty of time to read some more. Uh, so what we'll do is a second round, and if uh, any, you know, if anybody wants to read something else, then we then we'll do that. <laughs>